Good evening, everyone. Um, it wasn't that long ago uh, that I spoke to all of you, um, and and once again, I'm glad to be uh, back in touch with my audience tonight, as we are going to be discussing um, some new uh, adventures, or not so much adventures, but new uh, topics behind uh, Dan Abrams's book, John Adams Under Fire, and his uh, fight for justice in the Boston Massacre murder trials. Now, uh, last night, um, I will admit that I had a um, glitch with my uh, podcast last night where some of what I um, did share um, was not able to be um, recorded to where you all could have uh, had the chance to have listened to it. Um, I tell you, I I will admit that technology does have a mind of its own, even when we can't uh, control it, but you know... On the grand scheme of things, I I can say that I felt like I got at least three-fourths of what I um, did share last night um, actually uh, recorded and all. So I, I can't say that I came away with a good victory of sorts in terms of uh, presenting information um, to you all, the listeners. But what I did not get to share last night that was not recorded, uh, I remember I had stopped at the... Um, right at the part where um, protesters or the unruly mob were um, hurling insults at the uh, the British soldiers, most notably at, towards uh, Private Hugh White, who was individually protecting the uh, outside of the uh, custom house. He had been, uh, he had uh, had objects like snowballs and um, uh, a block of ice or oyster shells, I should say, any of those uh, objects hurled at him to where he was knocked senseless, senselessly to the ground, uh, but luckily did have support to come um, back him up for a means of uh, self-defense. But uh, they were, uh, the British soldiers were called um, lobsters, and if any of you had forgotten what was said from last night, uh, my question to you all was, how did lobsters even come about in terms of um, an inappropriate word to call someone like a British soldier? Well, the reason for why British soldiers were called lobsters was because back in the 18th century, lobsters were viewed as the lowest form of animal life. Uh, lobsters at that time really were uh, bottom dwellers, scavengers of the ocean. They preyed on everything they could get their hands on. So basically... Um, when you take a look at a lobster and how big its claw is, uh, their claws could just grab whatever was in front of them in terms of self-control, or not just self-control, but in terms of controlling everything that was around them. So the color of a lobster, or should I say a lobster's color, is red. The British soldiers wore red coats. So therefore, you link the two together, you get what's called a red coat, or a bloody lobster back. The color is so visible that that um, that once a lobster is cooked, it's so fully red that it's uh, recognizable. So that's why um, the unruly crowds or the mobs would uh, refer to the British as lobster, bloody lobster backs. It's not so much that they called the soldiers a bloody lobster back, but it was a uh, it was one of the most uh, grievous, uh, egregious, rather, I should say, of insults. And egregious, in case any of you don't know what that term means, it's another word for inappropriate. So that was really the lowest you could go in terms of hurling an insult at someone. 
especially of the opposition. Um, something else that was also not mentioned in the podcast last night that I um, was not able to fit in due to the glitch was um, you've heard me mention the term Sons of Liberty on more than one occasion. How did Sons of Liberty come about? Well, I can tell you this. The Sons of Liberty movement, while it started in Boston, it would eventually spread to other cities like New York City, for example. Um, I learned some time back from a previous uh, book that I had read last year. Actually, it was from uh, Bruce Chadwick's book on um, George Wythe's death titled I Am Murdered. Uh, the Sons of Liberty uh, was actually a, a term that was coined by uh, British sympathizers who actually took up empathy with the uh, colony's cause for um, defying what we call um, egregious pieces of legislation that had been passed by Parliament, most notably the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, and the Townshend duties, to... Um, high-ranking British um, parliamentary officials named um, John Wilkes and Isaac Barry are the two that coined the term Sons of Liberty in recognizing just uh, what lengths um, men like Paul Revere, Sam Adams, John Hancock, Dr. Joseph Warren, Samuel Prescott, and even an outsider by the name of Patrick Henry from Virginia who was an ardent um, supporter of the Sons of Liberty movement, um, were characterized as by um, John Wilkes and Isaac Barry. And not to get uh, too far ahead of the game, but uh, John Wilkes, believe it or not, I had um, done some reading on him uh, last year. It turns out that um, one of his uh, descendants was none none other than a man named John Wilkes Booth, who ended up uh, sh- killing President Abraham Lincoln. Of course, that is for a later time, but the bottom line is there is a connection. And as I mentioned earlier, connections, we like as much as we'd like to believe that they are good things, sometimes connections aren't always for the better. But to sum it up, Wilkes-Barre, or should I say John Wilkes-Isaac Barre, there is a city in Pennsylvania on the outskirts of Scranton um, being located well north of Philadelphia, uh, Wilkes-Barre, which is in honor of the two uh, British uh, legislators who empathized with the colonists' cause. So it is safe, very safe to say that there were many in Parliament who did empathize with the colonists. Sometimes they are overlooked, but when we learn about them, we do gain a better appreciation of knowing that, hey, Not everyone in Parliament was against us. There were people who did share our sympathy and pain. But anyways, back to to our primary uh, focal points and all. On the uh, night of March 5th, 1770, not just so much on the night of March 5th, but leading up to the massacre event, I was um, amazed to find out that troops in general, were not permitted to become involved in civilian disturbances unless the civilians themselves or civilians as groups of people or group group entity gave troops authorization to come in and break up an unruly disturbance. 
So in other words, the troops couldn't just come in at their own discretion and say, hey, enough is enough, you all need to break this up. It was totally left up to civilians of their respective towns or cities to um, break up the disturbance. But if you take a look at what's going on um, leading up to the night of the massacre, do you think most civilians who are so deeply caught up in the moment of, of uh, tense hatred and, and um, intense um, all-out uh, conflict, do you think any of those people are going to take time out of their schedule to say, hey, let's break this up before things get worse? Well, it does turn out that there were people on the night of March 5th who were, um, what do you call, regular, everyday, ordinary people, um, what do you call it, um, uh, good law-abiding citizens of the city of Boston who did tell the unruly crowds to say, hey, you all do need to knock this behavior off because if you're not careful, you could get hurt. Uh, leave, the, leave the troops alone. Let them patrol the area uh, but by doing so in a peaceful manner. If they're not hurting you, please don't hurt them back. Well, as for the soldiers who were patrolling the area of Boston, most notably the 29th Regiment of Foot, which is commanded by Captain Thomas Preston, this regiment was known for quick tempers. The, the, the group themselves were grenadiers. They were the biggest and toughest of the troops. They carried muskets nearly five feet long, and their bayonets were always fixed. Now, whenever my wife and I go to Colonial Williamsburg, which is probably no more than an hour from where we live, and as I've said before, just how thankful we are to live, to not be so far away from the from what was once the colonial capital of Virginia, the largest of the 13 colonies, we have learned um, at, the, um, at the magazine house uh, where, the, where rifles and gunpowder were stored that bayonets uh, were, when they were used in, in times of warfare, they were used at the very end when when the head unit had literally annihilated the opposition or was getting close to annihilating the opposition to where they would fix their bayonets right at about 50 yards from their enemy. And when they saw that their enemy had been completely, um, what do you call it, been completely wiped out or getting on the verge of being wiped out, they knew that they had them cornered to where they basically could just finish their job. So, here, here in Boston, the members of the 29th Regiment of Foot are carrying their bayonets with them all the time on their muskets. On one hand, it's seen as a deterrent to say, hey, if any of you outsiders are going to harass us and try to throw objects at us, we are coming at you. We may not fire at you, but we are not afraid to intimidate you with the means of a bayonet um, already on our um, musket and we mean business by um, by not just nudging you lightly, but by possibly um, hitting you so hard with our bayonet that it could cause uh, damage to the inside of your uh, stomach. And as awful and gory as it might sound, we just we need to remember that bayonets uh, from length to tip were about 18 inches long. So when you got stabbed with a bayonet 
it was a very, very horrifying experience. So, um, what caused a riot in the 18th century, or should I say, what caused a riot per 18th century terminology? Here's something new that I learned as a result of having read Dan Abrams's book, John Adams Under Fire. Uh, a riot itself involved three people acting together using force or violence, and each each individual had to be had to contribute in some manner, big and small. It's interesting that it took three people to 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 cause a riot. I learned not long ago in the, in the case of a conspiracy uh, that involved that had to involve two people. Uh, there is a Latin word for conspiracy, meaning conspirari, which is an act involving more than one person. So, whenever um, we think of riot in the 18th century, Parliament defined it as three people acting together. Did Parliament, prior to 1770, even have laws on it on record um, in terms of how Parliament as an institution could uh, control rioting. Well, yes, in 1714, Parliament passed what was known as the Riot Act. It was passed at a time of uh, turmoil in England. Perhaps it might be safe to say that the turmoil was geared towards um, conflicts in Ireland and Scotland, which England itself uh, reigned over, uh, because as mentioned from a previous podcast, uh, Patrick Carr, who was the final victim to die on the night of March 5th, 1770, even though he died about 10 days after that night from his wound, he had admitted on his deathbed that he saw, uh, that he had witnessed plenty of, um, what do you call it, uh, mob and soldier engagements that were of, uh, riotous proportion, but he had never seen anything so bad like what he saw on the night of March 5th. But the Riot Act itself was a measure aimed to prevent demonstrations from getting out of control. But we must remember that that when this law was passed in 1714, England and her, um, and her, co- and her uh, subjects at this time, being only 12 colonies, were all on very good terms. And it's still hard to believe that even in 1714, Georgia was not even established, or should I say settled. It would not be till at least another close to 20 years until Georgia was uh, settled as the 13th and final uh, colony in uh, the New World, or what we would eventually call colonial America. So, if I mentioned this earlier from last night's podcast, um, I do apologize if I will be mentioning it again, but I do believe it is uh, important, uh, nonetheless, to mention it again. Uh, Who is uh, Thomas Preston? Well, he is the commander of, or I should say the British captain officer of the 29th Regiment of Foot. He uh, He is roughly about 40 years old, and he is of Irish descent. He has served in the British military for 15 years leading up to the night of uh, March 5th, 1770. Captain Preston, believe it or not, was well-liked and greatly respected by many people 
And he was respected by a fair number of people in Boston leading up to the uh, massacre incident. I think it is safe to say that while, yes, there is a love-hate relationship between um, between British um, people of high ranking and most notably within the military, it is safe to say that that it uh, it only takes one incident to uh, sadly change things, and as a result of this uh, massacre, Captain Preston's uh, popularity starts to dwindle. He is accused of ordering his troops to fire on the locals, and where did that incident occur? On King Street. Well, given that... Um, a shooting has taken place. What happens with Captain Preston? I mean, Captain Preston's life has probably changed dramatically for the worse. Well, in the aftermath, or I should say the night of the massacre, even after people have left the scene and after people are left dying and wounded... Thomas Hutchinson comes in uh, to play to help modify um, order. Now, Thomas Hutchinson is the acting governor of what some people refer to Massachusetts as Massachusetts Bay. Thomas Hutchinson himself is a Boston man. He um, has um, has uh, what we would call very strong ties to Boston because his family had been among some of the early migrants to the province of Massachusetts. He uh, graduated from the same uh, institution of higher learning as John Adams did, except uh, Thomas Hutchinson graduated from Harvard College at the age of 16. And as I've said earlier from a previous night, it wasn't Harvard, like most of us say, but as a New Englander, a proud New Englander, would say, Harvard College. Mr. Hutchinson had worked as a merchant, which allowed him to amass a great fortune, probably in the same manner as John Hancock did. Mr. Hutchinson had served as a Speaker of the Massachusetts House of Representatives to receiving a royal appointment as Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Superior Court. How did uh, Thomas Hutchinson modify things so well in a short matter of time? Well, in a short period of time, he was able to uh, convene a hearing. He invited justices of the peace, along with military and civilian representatives, in an attempt to help reduce further violence, especially in the aftermath on, from the night of March 5th. It is safe to say, and based off of Dan Abrams's book, that um, Captain uh, Thomas Preston did receive not just th- he did receive threats, but of course these threats weren't received in the form of mail. Probably the most vocal and harshest critic of the Sons of Liberty at this point, leading leading up to the aftermath of the massacre, is Samuel Adams, John Adams's second cousin. While John Adams does not hate his cousin Samuel, they do see differences. They have differences. Are differences a good thing? Um, Yes, but they can be a bad thing if not uh, properly uh, checked and balanced. John Adams believed in relying on the laws 
to help resolve um, disputes big and small. Whereas Sam Adams believed in, um, how do you call it? Sam Adams was a smart man, but it might be safe to say that he could have been narrow-minded at times. And Sam Adams, you know, truly felt in his heart that the British soldiers were guilty and he had a right to be entitled to his opinion, but it's safe to say that Sam Adams was not big on um, on a uh, trial taking place. He he was looking for a, uh, a a resolution that would just have immediate results right on the spot. But Sam Adams uh, basically did tell Governor Hutchinson that hey, if action wasn't done right away to to um, to uh, take care of the um, of the conflict at stake, that he and thousands of others would see to it that um, Captain Preston and the eight soldiers were um, killed immediately. So, for, as for Thomas Hutchinson, he did a smart thing by um, housing um, the eight soldiers and Captain Preston at a place called Castle William Island in Boston Harbor, which is. Um, located which was located well outside the premises of the city had thomas hutchinson not done any of this given that he was the royal governor of massachusetts bay or should i say the acting governor it's safe to say there would have been further um escalation of violence not just on the night of march 5th but in the nights in the days after well Prior to this incident happening, uh, whenever an incident had taken place, the court trial took occurred um, in a few days after the incident took place. Why did the Boston Massacre trials take longer? Well, I, I will give you a hint right now. The first trial did not start until seven months after the incident, the initial incident took place. Why is that? Well, for one, it is an international incident for its time. And if you think about it, yes, we are still subjects to the crown, but it is considered an international incident because, for one, it didn't happen on um, English soil in England. Two, it happened overseas um, in one of England's colonies, being none other than Massachusetts. The Patriot leaders and the Loyalist loyalist leaders had to have time to um, interview uh, witnesses, not just interview them uh, face-to-face, but to take depositions or um, handwritten authorization letters confirming what random individuals saw and witnessed. The Patriot leaders took depositions from 96 witnesses. That's a lot of witnesses, even in 1770 standards. They published a pamphlet that would be referred to as a short narrative of the horrid massacre. Not horrible, but horrid, H-O-R-R-I-D. What did the loyalists do in return? They They took depositions as well, but their testimony occurred from only 31 people. I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of people living in uh, Massachusetts were patriots. Those who were loyalists, while they may have been in the minority, it is safe to say that they that many of these people were 
what you call upper middle class to well-to-do people, people who had significant business that was um, essential, not just for their own personal well-being, but essential for the crown. Their published, published version was referred to as a fair account of the late unhappy disturbance at Boston in New England. Well, it's safe to say that the terminology for both sides is, is a, are very good descriptions. For the Patriots being the horrid massacre, short for horrible, in their eyes, it, it was seen to them as being true victims at the hands of, a, um, of an army that had no boundaries. In other words, the lobsters, the, the redcoats, taking advantage of everything that was in front of them, grabbing it to the point where they could just break people's backs left and right without realizing uh, repercussions of those below them. As for the Loyalist leaders, that late unhappy disturbance at Boston and New England meant that they themselves were just witnessing the unruly mobs engage in engage in inappropriate conduct left and right like there was no tomorrow, a mob that seemed to find fault with everything in front of them, a mob that was just not satisfied with anything, no matter what lengths they went to to say repealing the Stamp Act or repealing anything else that might have been deemed unfair and unfit. So it's safe to say that both sides have come up with great stories. The problem here is leading up to March 5th, 1770, was that nobody really wanted to sit down and hammer out a, um, a, a compromise to say, hey, we've got to end this uh, bloodshed. I think it's safe to say that we look at, uh, in today's world, how Washington, D.C., for example, is so polarized that People have strayed from the middle, and that's what happened leading up to this massacre. Nobody was in the middle. The, the middle just did not exist. All right, here's a little quick bonus question. Um, how many people do you think were living in colonial America leading up to the Boston Massacre on the night of March 5th, 1770? The answer is just over 2 million people, about 2.2 million now, that is uh, quite a, a good number of people living in colonial America. And I think it is safe to say that, that probably the largest city in colonial America at this time is none, none other than Philadelphia. Boston, ha- however, has about 20,000 people living, get, making them the third uh, largest of the uh, third largest city in uh, colonial America. But I think it would be safe to say that Philadelphia is number one. Given, um, given that um, from where from a previous book I'd read somewhere else, where um, so much commerce was coming in and out of Philadelphia on a weekly basis, that um, people could obtain goods um, from all around the world more than uh, one day a week. But that's not to say that Boston and its cities north to them of uh, Salem, Gloucester, and Marblehead were um, very um, well known for their um, practices in uh, commercial trading, but somehow Philadelphia just had a better edge. 
Well, um, how does, um, how do I say it? John Adams, um, for being such a good lawyer, what does John, what, who can John Adams benefit from in terms of a book strategy and all? Well, we do know this. He is like many of our other forefathers, especially him and Thomas Jefferson have something in common. Thomas Jefferson was known to say throughout most of his um, life this saying, I cannot live without books. It might be the same it might be the same for John Adams as well. Mr. Adams himself was a very avid book collector, especially among legal slash law books. He took a, a significant interest in a four-volume series known as Commentaries of the Laws of England, published between 1765 and 1769, written by none other than Sir William Blackstone, who was the fo- of the foremost authority on the law, given that he was a one-time lawyer himself, a professor of law, a judge, along with being a member of parliament. And it turns out he was a very ardent supporter of the Stamp Act and the taxes that went into, um, into collecting revenue. His volumes focused on individual rights to security, liberty, and property. And here is something that I learned from last year. I've known that there has been this town in Virginia for some time. It's a town called Blackstone. It's not too far from where my wife and I live. It's in Southside, Virginia, in a county called Nottaway County, which borders Dinwiddie. Uh, The town of Blackstone is is right between the Dinwiddie-Nottaway line, but believe it or not, Blackstone, Virginia, is named for for none other than Sir William Blackstone. I was blown away when I learned when I learned this information, but it just goes to show you that, as I've mentioned before, in colonial America, many cities and towns were either named for cities in England, but at the same time they were also named for people as well. Now, if you take Virginia, for example, not to get off track, but I want to use Virginia as a good example here. In the eastern part of Virginia, what we refer to as the Tidewater Country, many of the towns and villages and cities are named after uh, establishments in England, like Norfolk, Suffolk, Portsmouth, Isle of Wight, um, uh, Sussex, Surrey, Southampton. The the list could go on and on, uh, but it's just a good example of where those English ties lie in, uh, especially in uh, the Tidewater area of Virginia. If you go further west into um, what we might think of as southwest Virginia in the Piedmont region, which is just west of the moder- of the fall line, um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of a city out in southwest Virginia known as Bristol, Virginia. There is a village in England called Bristol, England, which is southwest of London. Well, how ironic that Bristol, Virginia is southwest of Richmond, the, the current modern-day capital, but Bristol was a uh, thriving uh, port village town. Um, now, as for other places in, in the western part of the state of Virginia, they, those uh, places are, have been named um, in honor of um, 
famous uh, leaders in Virginia. Like, for example, if you take Grayson County in far southwest Virginia, that's named after Senator um, William Grayson, for whom that county is named after. Uh, Taswell County, named after Littleton Taswell, who was a governor of Virginia. You take uh, Wythe County, named after George Wythe. Um, Bland County, named after Richard Bland. Uh, Giles County, uh, named after William Branch Giles, who was uh, one of the first uh, senators, uh, U.S. senators in Virginia. So basically, every county has some unique connection, not just either to England, but to a uh, prominent Vir- Virginian who had an um, important role in the state's um, founding, or uh, should I say, in the state's uh, establishment, even after um, what we would call down the road after the war for um, independence from England. But of course, we haven't gotten that far yet. But the bottom line is, is that all these things that I've just mentioned have some have importance, big and small. Big and small. But uh, as for John Adams, what was his major interest in uh, William Blackstone's um, uh, books, or should I say volumes of books? Well, John Adams, strong, his strongest interest lied in self-defense. Self-defense per William Blackstone was a primary law of nature. It was, in, it was deeply embedded. It, self-defense itself could, could not be taken away by the law of society. The level of response must be limited defense and, and prevention. In other words, this self-defense must not always it must not it must not always be interpreted as eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth it guarantees protection on a 101 level but how was the term itself meant to be applied in the event of a massacre that's an excellent question and that is something that will have to be determined when the trial itself takes place what i can tell you this is that if one is attacked it can be lawful for an individual to use force to ensure physical safety. However, force itself must merit proper judgment because the use of force itself has to have boundaries. You can defend yourself if you know that you are being attacked, but at the same time, you cannot use excessive force to the point where if you physically attack someone and hurt them to the point where they are crippled and maimed and you do it for all the wrong reasons, then you are going to be the one that could end up being the guilty party. Well, here somebody could ask me this question. Why did the mob think it was okay to, to, to throw objects into the, um, at the British soldiers' faces? Why, why was it okay for them to do that when, when some of them should have realized that, hey, they weren't being attacked at, given, despite the fact that other members of the crowd were. The bottom line is, is that on that night, so many people's passions were, um, were engulfed to the point where they didn't know how to stop. They were so caught up in a moment where they just could not stand the, the, the presence 
of a red coat. They just couldn't stand the presence of outsiders policing their, their, their villages, making them be subjects, making them be chained to um, a post to where they just they couldn't uh, roam free. Finally, um, we, we should uh, talk tonight about the uh, defense strategies and what, uh, what disadvantages the prosecution team could be facing. This was something that I was going to mention last night, but, um, but this is where the glitch came in, so I'm um, refixing it tonight by mentioning it. The strategy for the defense was this. Captain Preston and his eight soldiers who had fired into the crowd were to place responsibility, or should I say blame the opposite, for, for the other's mishap. Thomas Preston was indicted for ordering his men to fire, given the fact that the eight troops had done the killing. But, remember this, people, if both Captain Preston and the troops tried to if they were tried together as one, the greater the likelihood of everyone as a as one group would be found guilty. So, the, as for the defense of the soldiers, it lied in following Captain Preston's order, which they were bound to do so, and if they did not abide by his orders, then they would face, um, their punishment would be penalty, uh, be, death penalty. In other words, if you did not adhere to your um, superior officer's order, then you would be uh, executed. But by having separate trials, it also meant that even if one of the two parties was found guilty, the punishment could not be as severe compared to everyone being tried at once. So while this would have been considered a gamble, it was the best solution for the defense if they didn't take this strategy or or implement it, then it's safe to say they would have been playing with uh, greater fire. What about for the prosecution? What's at stake for them? Well, here's the problem for the prosecution. There are three things. They 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 know for a fact that each of the eight soldiers that they wanted to try all eight soldiers together. But they ha- they were forced to come to a realization that each of the eight soldiers were on trial individually. And, and in order for a conviction to happen, each soldier had to have been found guilty of killing more than one civilian. And lastly, there was no hard concrete evidence available linking soldiers to victims. So in other words, let's take one of the soldiers, for example... Hugh White. The prosecution's going to have to determine, did Hugh White kill not only just one person, did he kill more than one person? Did he have it out for a particular individual or two? Did he, was he known verbally to say, hey, I want to kill John Smith. I want to kill as many uh, patriots. I want to kill as many people in Boston as there is possible. Well, one person can say, hey, I'm going to do this and that. But if they don't do it, then how can you really prove that they had deliberate intent to begin with? 
It's one thing to say something, but if you don't carry it out, then you can't find that person guilty. Now, now as we go into the next podcast discussion, we will learn about two of the eight soldiers. And the reason why I say two out of the eight, because these two particular soldiers have, um, have some interesting stuff on them. These two soldiers were probably what I, whom I would refer to as the leaders of the ring. In other words, did they plan out the killings? No. But for some reason, these two individuals have a lot at stake. And before we end the night, there is a famous um, engraving of the massacre incident itself. And in this book of Dan Abrams's John Adams Under Fire, it's on page 59. Now, if you uh, go online to even to your computer, you can type in through uh, Google search, you could type in Paul Revere, and you could type in, say, something like Paul Revere, um, the uh, engraving of the Boston Massacre, or the bloody massacre perpetrated in King Street, Boston, on March 5th, 1770. This famous picture shows Captain Thomas Preston ordering his troops to fire on the crowd. But what we've been led to believe for a number of years was that Captain Preston did it in a manner like as if he were out on an actual battlefield telling his troops to make ready, take aim, and fire. All, all of the men are lined up as, as one unit, firing volleys into the crowd. But based off of having watched videos of previous documentaries and after having read this book, we all should know that, that it didn't happen that smoothly or easily that night. There was a lot of chaos and commotion as it was. We now know that um, some of the British soldiers who had had objects hurled at them um, fell on the ground only to get back up and fire shots into the air as a warning. So we should now know that, okay, just because shots were fired, it didn't mean that all the shots were fired into the crowd. As I said a moment ago, a few shots were fired into the air to be meant uh, to serve as deterrent that, hey, you've thrown an object at me. I'm going to fire into the air, and this should be a warning for you to disperse and to make way and leave because you never know what the second shot could mean if it means resulting in a loss of life, a matter of life and death. So it's one, you know, pictures can tell one side of a story, but through learning about history through means of other historians and reading about um, books like this one, we are getting a different side of the story. And that's the beauty of history. It's not always a one-side story. And yes, even I have to be reminded um, that there are two sides to a story. I think we all have to be reminded to that of that, no matter how big or small uh, the incident or situation is. Even at times when we may not want to believe it, we still have to realize that, hey, there are two sides. And that's what ultimately John Adams is trying to convey here. 
it's not so much a court trial, but he's trying to um, convey a, a, le a message to the community that, okay, you may not like the presence of British troops, but you as an individual or as a, or as a community have an obligation to, um, to know how to properly conduct yourself. Okay, I may not like the presence of, a British, uh, of British troops having um, done so much harm to the people of Boston, but would it give me a right to um, hurl objects at them left and right to where, to where, say, Hugh White could have gone back into the barracks and brought out a whole other group of men who could have um, physically assaulted me uh, to the point where my life would be at stake. So, I know I might have uh, been rambling off too much, but this is a very um, passionate topic. Um, and not just topic, but a uh, passionate piece of history that, um, given that it's 250 years old, it must not be forgotten. It has a very unique story to tell. And in many ways, we are going to eventually learn that this incident was the ultimate tipping point that gave birth to a revolution. So, I leave tonight saying thank you for letting me finish what was unfinished from last night. And I look forward to another podcast episode. We have covered a lot. And, and while, yes, John Adams himself may have been a copious note-taker... I feel it's important to be a copious note-taker myself. I don't believe in needing to write everything down verbatim, every word by word, but how do you tell this story? You've got to be detailed with it. It's not just re reporting a few facts. Emotions are high, but remember, emotions are not going to be able to override the facts. Facts, even John Adams himself said that facts are intangible, they are messy things, but at the end of the day, whatever facts are reported, regardless of the side, patriot or loyalist, those facts are there. They won't go away. The bottom line is it's up to both sides to learn from the, from, from the episodes and to go forward to prevent further bloodshed. Take care, people, and God bless, and I look forward to... Uh, presenting more of Dan Abrams' John Adams Under Fire. Good night.